Section 3 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Stuart on the Romans, Part 2. Verses 18 and 19. We come now to those verses in which, as we have already seen, the comparison, commenced in verse 12, is resumed and carried through. Professor Stuart thus translates the 18th verse, Whereas, as by the offence of one sentence came upon all men unto condemnation, so also by the righteousness of one, the free gift, came upon all unto justification of life. Does it require any argument to prove that this verse means, as men are condemned on account of the offence of one man, so they are justified on account of the righteousness of one man? We hardly know how the Apostle could have spoken in plainer terms. To make him here say that the offence of Adam was the mere occasion of our condemnation is to do the most obvious violence to the passage, because, one, we have shown that this cannot be the meaning of these identical words as they occur in the sixteenth verse. Two, because such an interpretation is inconsistent with the whole scope and design of the passage. Three, especially because it violates the pointed antithesis in this verse, or forces us to suppose that Paul teaches that the righteousness of Christ was the mere occasion of men becoming holy. Surely, if the A expresses the occasional cause in the one member of the sentence, it must in the other. But, if we are not prepared to admit that Christ's righteousness is the mere occasion and not the ground of our justification, then we cannot maintain that Adam's sin is the mere occasion of our condemnation. 4. We may remark ad hominem that Professor Stewart admits that the corresponding clauses in the preceding verses express the idea that the offence of Adam was the ground of the condemnation of men. On account of that offence antecedent to any act of their own, death reigns over them, and they are, as he expresses it, in a state of condemnation. Of course, then, he cannot be permitted to turn round and say that the same words in the same connection teach here a different doctrine. There is no escaping the plain meaning of the verse. The very form of introduction proves that Paul is repeating an idea previously presented and established. Wherefore, as... And this idea, as we have abundantly shown, Professor Stewart himself admits, is that all men die, all are condemned, on account of Adam's sin. The expression justification of life, Professor Stewart justly remarks, means that justification which is connected with eternal life. It need hardly be stated that to say justification comes on all men is equivalent to saying all men are justified, or all are constituted righteous. The Apostle, therefore, does here assert that, as all are condemned for Adam's sin, so all are justified on account of the righteousness of Christ. To say, as Professor Stewart says, that the latter clause in this verse means that salvation is merely provided and offered to all, is to give all exegesis to the winds. When it is affirmed that a man is condemned or that he is pardoned, how can this mean that he is not condemned or not pardoned, but merely that an opportunity is offered, or an occasion presented for the one or the other. At this rate, we may say that all men are condemned for murder, as all have opportunities to secure this result. Whatever, therefore, justification of life may mean, Paul does assert that all men, of whom he is speaking, do receive it. It is at utter variance with all Bible and all common usage to make the words mean anything else. Whoever announces to a congregation of sinners that they are all justified, 
they are all constituted righteous, they all have the justification of eternal life. No one, neither does Paul. But does not this necessarily make the apostle teach universal salvation? Must not the all men of the second clause be coextensive with the all men of the first? We confidently answer no, and it is a matter of surprise how Professor Stewart can urge such an objection when he knows it admits so easily of a complete refutation, and that too by his own admission. The plain meaning of the passage is, as all connected with Adam are condemned, so all connected with Christ are justified. The first all includes all the natural descendants of Adam. Christ, who was a man, is not included. The second all includes the people of Christ, all connected with him by faith. Is this inconsistent with usage? Look at 1 Corinthians 15.21, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made partakers of a glorious resurrection, as the last clause there confessedly means. Is the second all, in this case, coextensive with the first? Certainly not. All connected with Adam die, all connected with Christ live. How can any man who admits, as Professor Stewart does, see page 524, that Paul in this passage is speaking only of Christians, and consequently that the all of the second clause must be confined to them, be serious in objecting to the same interpretation in the perfectly analogous passage before us? But secondly, Paul himself clearly intimates, or rather states in so many words, that the all men who are justified by Christ are the all who receive the abundance of mercy and pardoning grace, verse 17. This, as we understand him, Professor Stewart admits, for he surely does not mean to say that all men absolutely do receive this gift and do reign in life with Jesus Christ. Finally, it is impossible to carry the opposite interpretation through. There are two classes opposed or contrasted in verses 15, 16, 17, 18 and 19, and these are the same throughout. Now, is it true that the grace of God abounds to all men absolutely in the meaning of verse 15, that all are gratuitously pardoned for their many offences, as asserted in verse 16, that all reign in life with Christ, as is said in verse 17, that all are justified with the justification of eternal life, as stated in verse 18, that all are constituted righteous, that is, as Professor Stewart explains it, justified, pardoned, accepted, and treated as righteous, as taught in verse 19. This is plainly out of the question. Neither Professor Stewart nor any other man except a universalist can say this. We are persuaded there must be an end to all interpretation of Scripture and to all understanding of language if we are to be made to believe that being forgiven for many offences, being justified, being regarded and treated as righteous, mean merely that the offer and opportunity of salvation is afforded to all men. We may as well shut up the Bible at once and go bow at the footstool of the Pope if this be exegesis. Is it not clear then the objection to the common view of these passages cannot be sustained unless violence be done to every just principle of language? We have arrived at last at verse 19. For as by the disobedience of one man the many were constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be constituted righteous. The first question of interest on this verse is, what is its relation to the 18th? Is it a mere amplification, or does it assign a reason for the preceding declaration? Or may we adopt Storr's view of the 18th and make the Apostle there say, 
as in the condemnation of one man all were condemned, so in the justification of one all are justified, and then understand the nineteenth verse as assigning the ground of the truth thus presented. As it does not essentially alter the meaning of the verse before us, which of these views is adopted, we need not stop to discuss this point. A more important question is, what does Paul mean by saying, by the disobedience of one man the many were constituted sinners? Here we meet the three interpretations before noticed when speaking of the twelfth verse. 1. Adam's sin was the occasion of our becoming actually sinners. 2. By the transmission of his depraved nature we are rendered corrupt. 3. On account of his sin we are regarded and treated as sinners. Professor Stewart adopts the first, many Calvinistic and modern commentators the second, the majority we presume of all classes the third. That this last is the correct, and indeed the only possible one in this connection, we think very plain for the following reasons. 1. Usage, as is on all hands acknowledged, admits of this interpretation as naturally, to say the least, as either of the others. 2. With no show of reason can it be denied that to constitute sinners and to constitute righteous are here correlative expressions. If the former means to make corrupt or actual sinners, then the latter must mean to render holy. But this the phrase cannot mean here, a. because to constitute righteous is substituted for the phrase free gift of justification of the preceding verse, the dikiosune of the seventeenth and the dikiothentes of the first part of the chapter, b. because such an interpretation is entirely inconsistent with the scriptural usage of the terms justify and justification, and would overturn the very foundation of the doctrine of justification by faith, as taught by Paul and the other sacred writers. We are never said to be constituted personally wholly by the righteousness of Christ. c. and finally, ad hominem, Professor Stewart tells us, constituted righteous means justified, pardoned, accepted, and treated as righteous. With what semblance of consistency, then, can he deny that constituted sinners means regarded and treated as sinners? Has he forgotten what he said on the 17th verse, that if the one part of the verse speaks of condemnation, the other must speak of justification and vice versa? But, 3. Not only does the antithesis here demand this interpretation, but it is no less imperatively demanded in order to maintain any consistency in the exposition of the whole passage. We have seen that Professor Stewart admits that verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 all speak of our being condemned or dying on account of Adam's sin, and justified on account of Christ's righteousness. Shall then the 19th verse alone assert a different, and in this connection an incoherent, idea? And 4. The design and scope of the whole comparison requires this interpretation. As we have so frequently remarked, the Apostle is not contrasting sin and holiness, but condemnation and justification. He is not illustrating the way in which men become holy by the way in which they became corrupt, but the fact that we are regarded and treated as righteous on account of one man by the fact that we have been regarded and treated as sinners on account of another. It is, therefore, not only in violation of the plainest principles of interpretation, but at the expense of all consistency, that Professor Stewart makes the clause under consideration mean the disobedience of Adam was the occasion of men becoming personally and actually sinners. 
In reviewing the ground, we have now gone over how simple, natural, and conclusive is the argument of the Apostle according to the common interpretation, and how forced, incoherent, and contradictory the view Professor Stewart would have us to adopt. Paul tells us, verse 12, that by one man sin entered into the world, or men were brought to stand in the relation of sinners before God. Death consequently passed on all, because for the one offence of that one man all were regarded and treated as sinners. That this is really the case is plain, because the execution of the penalty of a law cannot be more extensive than its violation, and consequently, if all men are subject to penal evils, all are regarded as sinners in the sight of God. This universality in the infliction of penal evil cannot be accounted for on the ground of the violation of the law of Moses, since many died before the law was given, nor yet on account of the more general law written on the heart, since even they die who have never personally sinned at all. We must conclude, therefore, that men are regarded and treated as sinners on account of the sin of Adam. He is therefore a type of Christ, and yet the cases are not entirely analogous, for if it be consistent that we should suffer for what Adam did, how much more may we expect to be made happy for what Christ has done? Besides, we are condemned for one sin only on Adam's account, whereas Christ saves us not only from the evils consequent on that transgression, but from the punishment of our own innumerable offences. Now, if for the offence of one, death thus triumphs over all, how much more shall those who receive the grace of the gospel not only be saved from evil but reign in life through Christ Jesus? Wherefore, as on account of the offence of one the condemnatory sentence has passed on all the descendants of Adam, so on account of the righteousness of one gratuitous justification comes on all who receive the grace of Christ. For, as on account of the disobedience of the one we are treated as sinners, so on account of the obedience of the other we are treated as righteous. Let it be remarked that there is not a sentiment, to the best of our knowledge, contained in this general analysis, which has not the sanction, in one place or other, of Professor Stewart's authority. We will now very briefly attend to his objections to the doctrine of imputation, as presented in his commentary on the 19th verse. After stating, page 237, that the doctrine does not lie in the word katestafthesan, nor in the word in connection with theates parakoes, and arguing well to show that thea with a genitive may express an occasional or instrumental cause as well as an efficient one, he says, quote, We must come then to the examination of the whole phrase in order to get the satisfaction which is required. And if now the many became sinners by the disobedience of Adam, must it not follow that his sin is imputed to them, i.e. reckoned as theirs? In reply, I would ask, why should this be a necessary consequence of admitting the Apostle's assertion? If a writer should say that millions in Europe have become or been constituted profligates by Voltaire, would the necessary meaning be that the sin of Voltaire was put to their account? Certainly not. It would be enough to say, in order fully to explain and justify such an expression, that Voltaire had been an instrument, a means, or occasion of their profligacy. End quote. It is perfectly apparent that Professor Stewart had not, in writing this paragraph, the slightest conception of the argument for imputation founded on this passage. He admits what cannot be denied that the words will bear either of these two senses. We are treated as sinners, or become sinners personally. The question is, what is their meaning here? Now, if Paul says that all men die for Adam's offence, antecedent to any act of their own, 
If on account of that offence they are condemned, as Professor Stewart admits he does say, and then that we are constituted sinners by his disobedience, as we are constituted righteous, that is, confessedly treated as such, for the obedience of Christ, we think it very hard to disprove that he means to say that we are treated as sinners on his account, or, in other words, have his sin put to our account. The next paragraph is still more strange. I will select, says Professor Stewart, quote, a case more directly in point still, one taken from the very epistle under consideration, and which therefore must serve to cast direct light on the usus loquendi of Paul. In Romans 7.6, this apostle says, Our sinful passions are by the law. Again, in verse 7, I had not known sin except by the law. Again, in verse 8, Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. And so again in verse 11. End quote. He then asks whether it can be inferred from these passages that the law is the efficient cause of all sin, or that there is evil in the law, which evil is put to our account, i.e. merely imputed to us. We confess we can scarcely see how such reasoning, or rather such writing, can be answered. If it needs refutation, we are almost despair of giving it. We can only say we know no two propositions more diverse than Adam is the efficient cause of our sins, and Adam's sin is put to our account. How any mind can regard them as equivalent is to us a marvel. We as much believe that the law is the efficient cause of all sin as that Adam is. And when asked whether the passages quoted prove there is evil in the law, which evil is put to our account, we answer no, without the least idea what bearing it has on the point in hand. Did anyone imagine that the argument for imputation was founded simply on the use of the word via? Such reasoning might be sufficient, but this is not the case, the real argument we have repeatedly stated above. Is it not lamentable to see important doctrines rejected and long-received interpretations spurned by such a man for such reasons? Yet these are his exegetical reasons as here presented. The theological ones are such as follow. We must then examine, says Professor Stewart, the nature of the case. It is, according to the common theory of imputation, that the sin of one man is charged upon all his posterity, who are condemned to everlasting death because of it, antecedent to it, and independently of any voluntary emotion or action on their part. We object to the accuracy of this definition. The words to everlasting death should be left out because it matters not what men are condemned to as far as the doctrine is concerned. The doctrine is this, the sin of Adam is so put to the account of his posterity that they are condemned on account of it antecedent to any act of their own. This is our doctrine and as we have seen it is totidem verbis what Professor Stewart says Paul teaches in verses 15, 16, 17 of this chapter, although it is also the doctrine which he now argues against with so much vehemence. The reader will see that Mr. Stewart's objections are not directed against the clause everlasting death, and consequently its omission does not alter the case. His first objection is that the doctrine, quote, appears to contradict the essential principles of our moral consciousness. We can never force ourselves into a consciousness that any act is really our own, except one in which we have had a personal and voluntary concern. A transfer of moral turpitude is just as impossible as a transfer of souls. 
To repent, in the strict sense of the word, of another's personal act, is plainly an utter impossibility. End quote. We, in our simplicity, had hoped never to hear again, at least from Professor Stewart, these objections against this doctrine. They have so abundantly and frequently been proved to be founded in an entire misconception of its nature, that it is useless because hopeless to go over the proof again for those who still refuse to see it. We can therefore only say we no more believe in the transfer of moral turpitude than in the transfer of souls. Nor do we believe it is possible to repent in the strict sense of the word of another's personal act. Nor yet again do we believe that two and two make twenty, and still we, not a whit the less, believe the doctrine of imputation. If it be any amusement to Professor Stewart to write thus, we cannot object, but to call it arguing against imputation is a strange solecism. But secondly, quote, Such an imputation as that in question, viz. such as includes the idea of a transfer of moral turpitude, and that an act is really our own in which we have no personal concern, would be in direct opposition to the first principles of moral justice as conceived of by us or as represented in the Bible. That the son shall not die for the iniquity of the father is as true as that the father shall not die for the iniquity of the son, as God has most fully declared in Ezekiel 18. It would really seem that Professor Stewart is somehow infatuated on this subject, that he is unable to keep the same idea in his mind long enough to write two consecutive paragraphs. How is it? He does not see that the idea of imputation on which this sentence is founded is as different as day from night from that involved in the preceding. In the one, the transfer of moral turpitude and identity of act are included. In the other, both of these ideas are necessarily excluded and the whole doctrine is that one should die for the iniquity of another. It is not within the limits of possibility that he should understand the prophet as saying the moral turpitude of the father shall not be transferred to the son, nor his act be really the act of his offspring. This cannot be. Of course, Professor Stewart's idea of imputation when writing this paragraph was the opposite of the one he had when writing the preceding. But again, that a son should die for the iniquity of his father is, he says, quote, in direct opposition to the first principles of moral justice, end quote. He wonders how President Edwards could imagine that the declaration of the prophet was meant to be confined to the several individuals of the race of Adam, and not to be applied to the peculiar covenant relation between him and his posterity. And yet, as we have seen, Professor Stewart himself teaches, yea, on the very next page, reaffirms that all men do die on account of the iniquity of Adam. Such inconsistency is wonderful. He seems to feel, notwithstanding the warmth with which he argues, that all is not quite right, for he introduces an objector as suggesting to him, but still you admit that the whole human race became degenerate and degraded in consequence of the act of Adam. To which he replies, I do so. I fully believe it. I reject all attempts to explain away this. I go further, I admit not only the loss of an original state of righteousness in consequence of Adam's first sin, but that temporal evils and death have come on all by means of it, etc. Yes, respected sir, you admit what you deny, and deny what you admit. In such rapid succession your readers are bewildered. That one should die for the iniquity of another is on one page opposed to all justice, and on the next 
We not only all die for Adam's sin, but we are born destitute of holiness, with a nature degraded and degenerated in itself considered. We are involved in a certainty of sinning, and are in imminent hazard of everlasting death. Of all this, you teach that Adam's sin is not the occasion merely, but that these evils come upon us antecedent to any voluntary emotion of our own. Nay more, they are all in their nature penal, for in the next page you tell us they are, quote, part of the penalty of the law, end quote, a small part, as you are pleased to think, though a much larger part than Turretin and other strenuous advocates of the doctrine of imputation believe to be directly inflicted on our race for Adam's offence. We have now seen enough to convince the reader of two things. First, that the doctrine of imputation is not touched, either by Professor Stewart's exegesis or metaphysics. It is precisely where it was before. And second, that his whole exposition of this passage, Romans 5, 12-19, is so inconsistent with itself that it cannot by possibility be correct. In reading this portion of his commentary, we have been reminded of a remark of Lord Erskine in reference to one of Burke's efforts in the House of Commons, Quote, it was a sad failure, but Burke could bear it. End quote. It was our intention to extend these remarks to the excursus on Romans 5 at the end of the volume, but we have made this article much too long already. We must therefore defer the execution of this purpose to another occasion, should such be granted us. We think it will then appear that if our New Haven brethren can claim one half of what Professor Stewart says, we can establish our right to the other. End of section 4.